Welcome to Marvelous Disney with Aaron Adams, the podcast that discusses the most recent doings at one of the more dynamic divisions of the Walt Disney Company, which is, of course, Marvel Entertainment. This is entertainment writer Jim Hill and my co-host, the amazing Aaron Adams, and I are recording this week's episode on Wednesday, September 13th, 2023. Aaron and I don't know if you saw the news that broke, like, now it's like five hours ago, but the, the big news, like, not just Hulk big, we're talking Thanos big, maybe Galactus big, and, and by the way, I had no idea till just tonight that Galactus was once a human-sized figure? Did you know about this? No, I, I missed that in my Galactus uh, uh, schooling Okay, as a kid. Uh, I always well, thought he was huge. That was it. Well, that's huh. same thing here. Same thing here. But it was a pulling the other tonight's episode. I found out that this devourer of worlds was once a space explorer called Galen from the planet Ta who gained cosmic abilities by passing too close to a star. And... Evidently, this tale unfolded over two issues of the Thor comic book, issue 168 back in July of 1969, and then issue 169, which was published in October of that same year, script by Stan Lee, inked by Jack Kirby. Here's the logline. Thor, always honorable, is deemed worthy to learn the origin of Galactus. Out of mortal death comes a birth of cosmic energy. The history of Galactus, as told by Galactus, revealed to Marvel readers at long last. And you know, you know from from just the way that's written, that's Stan. You know, I oh, mean, of course, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> nobody could hype quite like Stan. Although it would would have been great if they would have tied it into uh, what is that that Monty Python skit where the guy goes to the restaurant and eats and eats and eats, and then the uh, <laughs> oh. uh, the <laughs> waiter offers <laughs> just. <laughs> One thin mint wafer uh, to finish Mr. it off, Mr. and boom, Galactus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Mr. Creosote. Yes, yeah, yes. there you go. Thank you. That actually, I have been to Meals with Friends. It's just one wafer thin mint. <laughs> yep. So, oh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, if, if you actually wanted to own originals of these particular comic books, and, and you're lucky enough to actually find someone who would be willing to sell them to you, be prepared to spend, eh, depending on the grade of the book, Five to seven hundred dollars a piece. So, anyway, back to the news. Today, visual effects artists for Marvel Studios voted unanimously to unionize. Not only that, but the visual these visual effects artists agreed to join forces with the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, the I A T S E, uh, and Ites. Well, you know, you you work in the business, Aaron. You know that these are what is it? I I, I was surprised to see this the number of members of this union, a hundred and seventy thousand. Yeah, there's a lot of people that go into making movies besides just Tom Cruise and a director. This is true, but this is one hundred seventy thousand behind the scenes entertainment workers, and these are folks who work at live events. These are folks, as you mentioned, who work on making uh, motion pictures and television. Also, work trade shows throughout the U.S. and Canada. And anyway, more than fifty workers uh, at Marvel Studios in L.A., New York, and Atlanta. As you recall, this story got underway back on on March eighth when they signed authorization cards with the National Labor Relations Board. The thing that concerns folks at Disney is 20 days later, on August 28th, the visual effects crew at Walt Disney Studios 
indicated their desire to follow their brothers over at Marvel Studios and unionize by filing paperwork again with the National Labor Relations Board. And this moved fast, Aaron. The visual effects artists uh, officially voted on unionization Monday this week, September 11th. Ballots were counted on Tuesday, September 12th. And now Wednesday, September 13th, here we are. And you got to assume Bob Iger, who already is not looking great for the way that Disney has been handling the writer's strike and the actor's strike. This can't be good to hear that. Uh, well, let's just, you know, get- I, I've heard that uh, Disney put out a statement saying, guys, we simply cannot afford these outrageous rates. And it was released through their PR firm that's supposed to handle their pa- bad publicity. That's only working at, you know, $10,000 a, a billable hour. Uh, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, so far, how much have you paid the PR firm to, to make you not look bad? And uh, could that money have just gone to the writers and the VFX artists and just called it a day? You know, I, I actually, I know you're trying to be funny here, but I actually the AMPTSE, the uh, producers union, mm-hmm. did in fact hire a crisis PR team. I know they did, yeah. Yeah, and it's just sort of like, yes, they, they, you know, it, the money that is being lost. In fact, I, I saw something the other day that basically put it out that what the writers are asking for basically amounts to $47 million a year. That's it. Right. And the percentage of that is incredibly, like, versus what the studios make together combined. And then you take, you know, like, if you were to say, hey, Jim, can I borrow $47 million? You'd be like, get Mm -hmm. the hell out of here, sucker. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Right? But, I mean, if you're talking about all of the movie studios in America and their yep. combined total income, mm-hmm. that is a very, very minute fraction of, of no, what they've totally, got coming in, right? Totally. And to have this visual effects story walk out, because remember that the, we've been hearing about terrible working conditions, 18-hour days, weeks at a time where people working work for seven days straight, working through meal breaks, sleeping under their desks to make deadlines on projects like mm-hmm. Ant-Man of the Wasp, Quantumania, or Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Bandas. So these folks decided to unionize. Not a surprise. I was going to just add in real quick. Uh, I remember watching the behind-the-scenes features of Peter Jackson's King Kong. Mm-hmm. And there was a bit in there where they they had created a jungle and then they Mm -hmm. had blue screen. And so you would shoot, you know, through the the leaves and the trees and the blue screen in the background. And Mm -hmm. Peter had said at one point they didn't have enough blue screen. So if you pan too far this way, you get like the actual studio, you know, Mm -hmm. wall. And uh, he's like, and that's okay because we got VFX guys that can just paint that stuff out. It'll take Mm -hmm. them, you know, a bunch of hours. But then he kind of joked about the fact that you have to paint out between these leaves and vines the back wall and it was just a joke but in my mind i was like you jerk because Mm. there's a person that actually has to go through and your camera's moving right Mm. so it's not like a static shot Mm. where you can just do it one time and be done with it you've got to do it frame by frame by frame by frame by frame Mm. and if you would have just planned a little bit better and had a little bit more blue wall you would have saved maybe like 50 man hours that could have been put instead of towards painting out your lack of uh, preparation 
Hmm. And I mean, Peter's well prepped, right? It's just hmm. this one little goof that he made, but it cost him a lot of man hours. And it's just hmm. like, if you just would have prepped a little bit better, if you would have had a little bit more foresight. Now, with the thing like the, the strike coming up, they've been working 18 hour days, six, seven you know, days a week, stuff like that. I'm hoping that this will help. Uh, people like Kevin Feige who are always pushing to the very last second to plus the movie, plus the movie, plus the movie. Yeah. I, th- I think that attitude's going to have to change just a little bit. And got, like, guys, you need to have your plan and you're your poop in a group mm-hmm. and you have to execute the plan and you can't get, you know, 90% way through your charted course and then decide you need a, a massive course correction because we just can't do that. Or you got to pay through the nose, one or the other. And I know that Disney's not going to want to pay through the nose, so they're going to be like, you know what, maybe we should just plan a little bit better in the future. And again, do you wonder, taking the 30,000-foot view and all of this news we've heard lately about, you know, uh, productions being pushed back. I mean, for example, uh, Agatha, uh, you know... <laughs> new name now, new name. I mean, to get away, actually. Uh, all right, House of Harkness? No, yeah, Dark Hole Diary. Dark Hole Diary. Yeah, there yeah. we go. Okay. Yeah. But suddenly, you know, you got to wonder, okay, that being pushed off to be a Halloween event for 2024, is this really about the strike? Or maybe is it, is it exactly what you just said? That maybe, all right, if we're going to actually deliver visual effects-wise and maybe <laughs> allow our, our effects artists to go home and nap and eat and bathe, maybe that's what's going on here. I also think if it's a, a witchy kind of show, I think it just deserves to be in an October slot. You're not wrong. That October wrong. is, you know, mm-hmm. when, when all of that stuff happens. So, mm-hmm. I mean, thematically it fits. I don't know if there are any threads tied elsewhere into the MCU where it needs to land chronologically in a specific space but we did have movies in the past that swap places and so i think kevin feige was like yeah this happens before that but you know it's okay when you're watching it at home you you put it in the right order it's fine don't worry about it okay okay all right Uh, well again uh, we're gonna watch obviously watch this story folks especially to see what happens with the the disney visual effects artists because uh they've signed their cards and and announced their intention to vote so let's see what happens but anyway more news coming up shortly but first news portion of marvelous disney is brought to you by touring plans own travel agency and if you're thinking of heading down to walt disney world in the not so distant future why not let these obviously knowledgeable folks help you plan uh, have you book a, a vacation package to that resort? They'll even toss in a subscription to touring plans for free. Seriously, though, if you're planning ahead to Central Florida anytime soon, touring plans, own travel agency, obviously the smartest way to go. So please check them out at touringplans.com backslash travel. Okay, uh, just talking a moment ago about Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. My copy of the art of book for that Sam Raimi film arrived here at the house uh, earlier today. And Aaron, when we were free gaming, you mentioned you'd heard, I think you described it as a wild ass rumor about yeah, Mr. Raimi. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, well, like, I think that the, I think a lot of fans are. Eager to have something happen because we got that Tobey uh, Maguire, Andrew Garfield team up in the last Spider-Man movie. It's like, wouldn't it be great if they got brought back for Secret Wars? And the idea of, you know, we're getting uh, Hugh Jackman back for Wolverine and Patrick Stewart. The the feel is that we're going to end up with a, a whole lot of previous Marvel movie stars from different eras that may possibly show up in uh, this 
you know, big, huge Avengers team-up movie. So then if you speculate, well, if, if we're going to have all of that, why not have someone like Sam Raimi direct it? Because, you know, he, he was there for the, the Spider-Man original movies with Toby. He came back for Doctor Strange. He's obviously a, a very talented director that's, you know, earned his, his uh, clout mm-hmm. in Hollywood by, by delivering, you know, consistently good stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, it doesn't seem like an overly risky move to invite him. I just don't, I just don't know yet. Because Sam is a specific flavor, right? I mean, he's, he's he is he is yeah. you know. Um, I mean, he did great with Doctor Strange. I've got no no qualms about his directing on that at all. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just you know, I think the Russos did such a great job with uh, Endgame and Infinity War, and they have made such a loud proclamation of they would do anything to direct Secret Wars. It's their dream job, and it's like, mm-hmm. come on. Throw the, I mean, they've earned the bone to be thrown at them, so throw them the bone. If that's their dream job, uh, mm-hmm. go for it. I'm sure you've seen the news over the past uh, week to 10 days where a number of the deals that various uh, filmmakers with studios uh, have, you know, housekeeping mm-hmm. deals, you know, production and development deals, you know, with the notion of whatever you develop, we get first stab at. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these deals have been suspended because obviously, again, you know, these are studios going, look, we have no actors in the building. We have no writers in the building. What's the point of you having a housekeeping deal with us if we can't make movies? So we're going to hold this for a while. You know, the, the notion is, you know, uh, just going to pause it. And So l- let me ask you this. If, if you pause a thing like that, you've mm-hmm. got a deal. Let's say uh, you had an exclusive deal for four years. Mm-hmm. Well, if you pause it for six months, does that mean the new deal has been extended by that six months that you paused it? Because if you eat it up, then then you're kind of just getting screwed out of that six months. It's not being paused. It's just not being used. Actually, there's a phrase, and I'm blanking it, but but you're not wrong. You know, the notion is that we are pausing the physical deal, but we are extending it for the length of the strike. The notion okay. is, you know, just like, look, we're going to stop paying you during the strike. But as soon as the strike's over, you know, we're back in business. Okay. You know, uh, so... That seems, that seems fair then. Yeah. No, but, no but real grape over that. It's, it's like people like Mindy Collin, but it's also folks like J.J. Abrams, you know, who, mm-hmm. who've supposedly, you know, very quietly been told, look, we're going to pause the deal. But, you know, as soon as we're back in business. But we had talked on a recent show about that... Avengers Vault store that was going to be built at Disney's California Adventure, where the exit through the gift shop for the King Thanos uh, mm-hmm. attraction was supposed to be built. And I, I think you and I were, were whining back then to the thing, oh, great, we get, we get the gift shop the, that we're supposed to exit through, but not the ride itself. Well, that was your complaint. I was, I was just happy they were using the building. Well, this is true. So. This is true because I'm a I'm a whiny baby man. In fact, you know, I'm well, a car- you know, you're trained. They've they've really trained you very well to expect if there's a ride, there mm-hmm. should be at the exit a gift shop. So if you have mm-hmm. a gift shop, you mm-hmm. damn well expect there to be a ride in front of it. Speaking of, again, I apologize, but Jim Schull and I, who have been working with Len on mm-hmm. on Disney Unpacked, we just this week we are, are tackling the topic of. You know, a weird question, but what was the very first ride at a Disney theme park where people were forced to exit through the gift shop? 
And I, you know, it, it, the weird thing is it may go back as far as the late 50s. Not to blow the research we're doing, but, but yeah, they, they have been finding interesting ways to get into your wallet for quite some time. Anyway, speaking of the, the King Thanos ride, just this past weekend at the D23, or the, excuse me, the Destination D event, uh, D23 event at the Disney Contemporary Hotel, we got a little more info about this attraction. The ride experience, uh, the, the vehicle is supposed to be inspired by Tony Stark's time suit using Zandarian jump points and Wakandan technology. These multi-passenger vehicles will have the ability to transport visitors to California Adventure to remote worlds in a matter of moments to help Marvel superheroes save the day. These ride vehicles will combine portal technology and flight capability to allow them to maneuver through the sky, uh, giving Marvel superheroes and the guests they recruit to help them to deploy wherever they are needed. And I don't know if you saw the, the piece of concept art, but it, it literally shows this moment where your ride vehicle is, in fact, like 100 feet in the air above the Avengers headquarters building where the gift shop is going to be located. Okay, speaking of the concept art, it shows uh, a vehicle that holds three rows of passengers, four passengers to each row. So it looks like the ride vehicle have 12 person capacity. This new ride will blend large-scale built environments and immersive multimedia to create a ride experience that, again, will allow guests to jump between worlds, even between realities, as they battle King Thanos. And again, the conceit of, of King Thanos is this is the version of that character that somehow survived, uh, not only survived, the Battle of the Avengers Compound in upstate New York, this is the one who defe defeated Tony Stark, got the gauntlet, and is now in charge of the multiverse. Now, downside, we don't have a name for this ride. We have no news on when construction might begin or when this ambitious Marvel-based ride might open. I hope they have a snack stand right next to it that they pull from it called, you, you know why, right? Infinity Cones. <laughs> Wasn't that from Thor uh, Ragnarok? They, they I, did that I gag, the believe, village. You know, and there is just, that's actually another reason I am so looking forward to the art of book for the Taika Watiti book next week. Because mm -hmm. that riff on new uh, Valhalla? No, 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 no. Uh, new Asgard. New Asgard. Yeah. Uh, you know, just how Disney theme parky that was. Right. Uh, I really want to see that in the real world. And yes, I, I, want, I think I that's want... Taika's subversive humor of like, let's make fun of Disney, but don't tell him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and speaking of Taika, he's got a brand new movie out, Next Goal Wins, which. Yeah, the trailer mm. for that looks hilarious. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a soccer team, and, and they just cannot even score a goal. Like, they put the guy, like, right up to the, the net. He kicks the ball, it hits the post, and bounces in his face, and. And, like they just cannot score, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, Taika's I guess the coach, mm -hmm. and uh, he's got to get the the team to be able to score at least one freaking goal before the end of the movie, please. That's it. Mm, so okay. it looks it looks very funny. Taika Waititi at this point is very you know I, 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 
I'm very much in Philip J. Fry mode when yep. I hear Tyka's doing something. He said, shut up and take my money. Yep. So yep. speaking of, of things I'm, I'm very much looking forward to, uh, Deadpool 3, which again uh, got paused when the, the actors went out. But Sean Levy, who is directing Deadpool 3, was actually up in Canada last week at the Toronto International Film Festival, where he was picking up the inaugural Norman Jewson Award. And he got asked, he was, he was working the carpet there, about what was going on with that movie. And he made it sound like a lot of fun. And, and he started off by saying, well, look, like the rest of the industry, or at least a large swath of it, we're paused. We're halfway through uh, filming Deadpool 3, co-starring Wolverine. It was a joy every day, and that chemistry between Ryan and Hugh Jackman is as relentless as we all hoped it would be. He got asked whether this movie would continue in the style and the tone, and that's a polite way of saying R-rated raunchy humor, that was established by Tim Miller, the director of the original Deadpool, and David Leash, uh, who was director of Deadpool 2, and uh, Levy uh, told Deadline, I wasn't going to mess with the DNA of this franchise. Our movie is raw, audacious, very R-rated, and we went to great lengths to not shoot it on sound stages with digital environments. And we wanted something that felt grounded, real. Uh, you know, you put Hugh Jackman in his most iconic character alongside, you know, Ryan Reynolds in his most iconic character. Uh, to be honest, this film is more of a descendant of Midnight Run and 48 Hours and planes, trains, and automobiles, more <laughs> a descendant of Airplane. So, I mean, just hearing that, just hearing, you know, those three movies, Midnight Run, 48 Hours, and Plane, Trains, and Automobiles, like, oh. Yeah. So, yep. uh, now, as for that outfit that you and I were commenting on, uh, the, the, the yellow and blue uh, mm -hmm. Wolverine outfit that, the that, the, that we saw Hugh Jackman wearing on set, Levy told EW, it's like, like the rest of the world. I've waited two decades to see Wolverine in a whole movie with Deadpool. And I didn't know if this was our last shot at Wolverine on screen. So I was going to make damn sure that we got the old yellow and blue just once and that we got it right. And speaking of getting it right, you know, that, that again, they wanted that outfit to look exactly like the way Wolverine looked in X-Men, the animated series from the 90s. Yep. And Levy goes on to say, what really helped here is that I'm making a movie within the MCU, so I have access to an army of the nerdiest nerds available on a Marvel project. Well, I hope at some point they go indoors so he can rip off the sleeves of that damn thing and get it really <laughs> comic accurate. I mean, they did a good job. They got it they really did. close, and, and I understand the reasoning for you yeah. know Hugh Jackman's health. No, mm -hmm. we're not going to make any qualms about that. But yeah, mm -hmm. get, get inside, get them out of the sun, rip off them sleeves, and then watch all the fanboys just go, finally. Yeah, there we go. Now, 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 the irony, the sheer irony of this is those same sorts of folks, the nerdiest of the nerds, also work over at Warner's. They were on board with... That Batgirl movie, which you know brought back Michael Keaton's version of Batman from the, the Tim Burton movies, but obviously uh, that story didn't end as happily as, as well as we hope Deadpool 3 will. By the way, more on that movie 
and the very first attempt to make a Fantastic Four film in a moment. We've talked previously about Adele El Abari and Bilal Falal. Uh, they're the directors of, of Batgirl, that, that DC film at Warner Brothers, which had Leslie Grace in the title role. The one that got killed, you know, this past summer by you know, Zaslav for largely bookkeeping reasons. You know, I, I hate to say this, but I think that was probably a smart move. And the it's a real stupid, basic reason. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, obviously, you've, you've got things like The Rock and mm-hmm. Black Adam that didn't do quite as well. Right. You got The Flash that didn't mm-hmm. do quite as well. With actors that we're very, very familiar with and, and I thought eager to see on screen. Mm-hmm. Batgirl is like, you know, a B-grade Batman. You know, it's mm-hmm. like usually everybody's all about Batman. Batgirl, it's like, yeah, kind of cool. Okay, you know, tied to Batman, but not quite Batman. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then you've got a star that isn't like The Rock famous in mm-hmm. name. And I just don't know if that would have pulled any money in theaters to, to make its money back. Mm-hmm. I mean, I really think that there was a lot going against it just from super basic, stupid Hollywood math of it's not a known star. It's not the greatest uh, of all of the characters. And how much are we going to spend on it? And how much are we going get, to get back? That was a, a dicey call. And I think at, at the end of the day, as unfortunate as it is, because mm-hmm. I know everybody put their heart and soul into it. Nobody goes into to make a bad movie. Nobody. No, true. Right. So, so I know that everyone, you know, gave it all their best, but at the Mm. end of the day, it's like business wise, that, that may have been one of the actual good decisions. I hate to say. Okay. Go ahead. Let me just deviate a little bit here. You've seen the flash at this point, right? Actually, I haven't. And I, it, see, this is one of those things. Mm. I'm, I don't care enough to watch it until it's free. Okay. Okay. Well, I caught it the other night on Max, and they yep. get to these these much hyped scenes where you get to see George Reeves as Superman, you get to see Christopher Reeves as oh, Superman, yeah. you get to see Nicolas Cage as Superman, and and you know Adam West as Batman, and 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 the like. And the thing is, these scenes are so over designed. That, I mean, one of the key elements of filmmaking is show me where I'm supposed to be looking. Frame the shot in such a way that I I know what I'm supposed to be looking at, what the emotional impact of that. I'm being given information that moves me forward in the story. And and this is the thing. The scenes are so visually busy Mm. that... The impact of that's your dreams, that's Christopher Reeves, that's Nicholas Cage, the, the things that should land. There's, there's, you know, lost uh, in the blur of all of yeah. the, the zebras running. It's like, what the hell is all that? I felt the yeah. same way about like the Transformers movies and some other things where it's just a whole bunch of shiny stuff moving really fast. And I'm like, what the hell yeah. is all of this chaos? Yeah. And, and it, yeah, okay. And, it, and the weird thing is, there is a wonderful emotional story. That Ezra Miller, in fact, the, the quiet, slowest, least affected, you know, visual effect driven moments in the movies 
are the ones that really land, the ones that, you mm-hmm. know, are, that just suck you in. And it's just, it's one of these things where if it was all of these effects and the cost of making this movie that ultimately made Zaslav think, no, 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 you know, we're not going to do the same thing again with Batgirl. We're not going to throw good money after bad, put that thing in the vault. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a heartbreaker because it's just yeah. sort of like, I just, there's a part of me that thinks, you know, if, if somebody had approached that very same scene with a third of that visual effects budget, but knew what they were doing. Oh, it could have been so much more effective. But right. all right. A- anyway, back to Adele and Bilal. And again, talking about uh, when they saw The Flash. It said, look, we watched it and we were sad. I mean, we love uh, director Andy Muschietti uh, and his sister Barbara, who produced the movie. But we watched it. We felt that our movie should have been part of this whole thing i mean we, we didn't get the chance to show batgirl to the world and and let an audience judge for themselves because the audience is really our ultimate boss and should have been the deciders of if something is good or bad or, or whether something should be seen or not and adele went on to say our movie was very different than The Flash. Uh, you know, that it was more grounded, you know, more of Tim uh, Burton's Gotham City. And and what especially uh, disappointed El Albari and Falal was that people didn't get to see the performance that they got out of Michael Keaton as he reprised his, again, role of Batman from, from those Tim Burton movies. And Bilal wanted to say, I felt like a kid when I was working on the, the set, uh, you know, on the set working with with Keaton. I, I, I totally forgot I was directing. And uh, Adele goes on to say, it, it's the biggest disappointment of our careers as a fanboy, just to be in the presence of Keaton as Batman. It was just a privilege and an honor. So it's a, it's a bitty, bittersweet feeling. and Which brings me to uh, a Marvel movie that was supposed to stay in the vault, but but Aaron, you actually own a copy of this, right? The Fantastic Four movie from 94, right? So wait a minute. You know damn well about the Marvel PR team and their snipers, and you're just going to let out that I've got contraband. You know, okay. Jim, oh, my neck, ow, what? I'm so sleepy, I'm going to... Well, all right, folks, it's going to be a slower show than expected. All right, I I guess I could also mention that I myself have seen uh, the, this movie because I'm, my friend Arlen Miller, who has copies of everything that he's not supposed to, uh, you know, don't. By the way, he's in Poinciana, Florida. Uh, if the Marvel snipers, you know, want to head out, you know, did, did, you, you'll find him at home. Get him off of the Indianapolis headquarters, quick. <laughs> but yeah, now, I, so you've seen this. This is the, oh, yeah. the Roger Corman movie. Yeah, and I apologize. I did say earlier nobody sets out to make a, a bad movie, and apparently I was wrong. This is the one exception where they, well, they're yeah. just like, how much did they have? Four million? Was that uh, it? One million. One, one million okay, dollars. One, one square you know. million in a little tiny pile to light on fire. Okay. okay. And this was done to keep the rights active for yeah. a studio? No, no. 
Very good. All right. So you know the backstory. All right. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, if you, you want to, to look at a really in-depth take on it, there is a wonderful 2015 documentary, Doom, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. I seek mm-hmm. that out. In fact, it, it, you know, the irony is it has so much better production values than, you know, Roger <laughs> Corman's actual movie. <laughs> the actual movie they're talking about. Okay. So, but, but here's how it was explained to me. Okay. So, 1983, German producer Bernd Eichenreger. Uh, he's uh, one of the gentlemen who was involved in the hugely successful never-ending story. Uh, he meets with Stan Lee. And, you know, he wants the film rights to both The Fantastic Four and Silver Surfer. Stan had been trying to sell the rights to these characters to big Hollywood suits like Warner Brothers and Columbia, but nobody bid. And in fact, uh, what that kind of fascinates me because we've talked about on the show how it was Universal that grabbed the rights to both the Hulk and Namor, mm. but but not the Fantastic Four and Silver Surfer. That just seems weird to me. Well, back then it was kind of like a smorgasbord, and and you know it's like out of three thousand characters, which mm-hmm. ones do you want? And they're like uh, cherry pick that one and that one because they are probably just the hottest in the in that moment when they were buying it. Interesting point. Okay, so 1983, Einager grabs the rights to these characters, but now uh, it's a 10-year deal, and we're coming up in 1992. The option is running out, and Einager has a choice. He has to get a film of production or risk losing the rights. And he initially approaches Lloyd Kaufman, the guy behind the Toxic Avenger movies, it turns out that Lloyd is friends, longtime friends with Stan Lee. And it's like, no, I am not going to rush a movie into production, particularly of the Fantastic Four, just to make sure that, you know, the rights don't revert to, to Marvel. But I'm just imagining a Fantastic Four movie in the Toxie universe, because I used to watch those movies as a kid. They are kind of cool. They yeah, <laughs> I just I, I can only like it's it would almost border on really fantastic. Uh, uh, no pun intended. It fantastic could. Four. It could. Yeah, yeah. in that bad '80s sort of way. Gosh, that we missed out on a uh, real cherry there. I think. Damn. Okay, mm. carry on. Go ahead. Okay, so anyway, the, this German filmmaker then meets with Roger Corman. Corman was famous for shooting movies. I want to say the original Little Shop of Horrors. That was a week. I mean, fast and cheap, but they always made money. So he went to Corman with a deal to the effect of, you have to make a Fantastic Four movie for a million dollars, which, by the way, was, you know, like five times the highest budget that Corman typically worked with on a movie. But it had to be done ridiculously quickly. Again, it had to be completed by January of 1993. So Corman takes the deal and then casts the, the film very quickly. It's supposed to get underway in late December of 1992. That's a couple of weeks from 1993. There we go. There we go. And the cast, you know, what's interesting, again, if you watch Doomed, they reached out to the actual cast, which features folks like Jay Underwood and Michael Bailey Smith. And they talk about, we kind of knew something was up. I mean, First of all, it's being shot at the Venice Soundstage, uh, the, the, the Venice, California Soundstages of New Horizon, 
which to call them a warehouse is being kind. You know, it just it's like we're shooting a movie here. Yes, shut up. More to the point, they shot through Christmas. I mean, it wasn't a question of, oh, you know, we're, we're pausing for the holidays. No, we are shooting. We will get this done. And it was a 22-day long shoot. They got it done January of 93. They met the conditions of the contract. And Stanley, but especially during this period at Marvel, was perfectly happy to take a check from anybody. You know, if there's enough zeros on it, we can make a deal here. But even Stan had heard about how bad from the rushes and all that the Fantastic Four film looked. So he got asked about it in 93. And he flat out said, look, I'm not expecting too much. But he wanted to put a positive spin on it because that they were already talking with 20th Century Fox about the X-Men movies. And so he was like, look, this is the last movie to, uh, to be made uh, that we here at Marvel will have no control over. Our, our lawyers just gave the rights to Roger Corman to do that movie. There will be no other projects like that. Everything after this, we are doing ourselves. And then there was a much hyped premiere for charity. That, but again, was held at that great filmmaking capital of the world, uh, Minnesota, uh, at the Mall of America. You know, but this is January of '94. January in Minnesota. January Lovely. Minnesota. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you. I can't wait to go uh, in my 17 layers of parka. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So. At that point, after this premiere, and again, I'd love to find out how, exactly how much of the money from this premiere actually made it to a charity, and if so, what charity, the theatrical release of Fantastic Four is halted. Now, 20th Century Fox, as we mentioned, now had the rights to the X-Men films, and their thinking was, we don't want a horrible Marvel movie out there tainting the brand. So what they did is they reached out to the German producer and basically paid him. It's like, how much is it going to take that this film never sees the light of day? Here's a gallon of gasoline and a match and $10,000. No, $50,000, $100,000. There we go. And it, into the vault it went, but it didn't stay there. So I'm assuming... That you got a hold of this, you know, what, uh, you went to a, a collector's show, somebody was working a table, because that's where I saw it a lot. You know, somebody would have a, a VHS, you know, a box full of VHSs, and there would be the, the Roger Corman, you know, Fantastic Four. How did it wander into your life? Uh, working at a video store. Oh, that's right. That's someone, right. Someone brought it in for like a trade-in, you mm -hmm. know, and it wouldn't ring up mm -hmm. because it wasn't legit. Mm -hmm. And I was like, hey, man, store can't give you any money for this because this ain't a real movie. Mm -hmm. However, mm -hmm. I'll give you 10 bucks for it right now. Mm -hmm. If the store were to give you anything for it, you'd be lucky to get 50 cents. Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, I'll take 10 bucks. And I'm like, here you go, brother. No receipts, no questions. This is a personal transaction <laughs> between you and me. Right? You got that? And he's like, yep. And I'm like, all right, dude, walk out the door. <laughs> wow. And that's how it came into the collection. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you've watched it all the way through, right? Oh, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, uh, uh, to be fair to it, it's mm-hmm. for only a million bucks. It looks really good for a million dollar movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't fathom how. I mean, they had to make costumes. They had mm-hmm. to, you know, make a Doctor Doom that looked like it wasn't tinfoil mm-hmm. for for the masks. So, I mean, they they had some craftsmanship to to be able to say it looks just like a hair above cosplay as mm-hmm. far as the costumes go, um, because they didn't have a whole lot of money or time to do anything super wonderful with it. So, what they got out of that that little squeeze of the orange was, uh, you know, like. It's not some bad juice. If they would have had more time, more money, and someone was actually putting their real effort into it, not to just you know make a, a deal contract stay longer mm-hmm. in, in your domain. If they actually would have put you know real time money and effort into it, they probably could have made something that was watchable. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, like Johnny Storm, you, you got to make the dude on fire. And uh, I, I don't know if they were doing like rotoscoping back in that day. Mm-hmm. to get the, the orange effects through that or whatever. But I was like, yeah, for a million bucks, it's better what you could do because, you, you know, you didn't have the computer technology. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right? So, I mean, it, it did take some artists to do mm-hmm. some some craft to make mm-hmm. that happen. So it was, it was decent. But at the same time, it, what was interesting is that I remember watching it and there's that that exchange at the end of Bride of Frankenstein <laughs> where, you know, the monster is shooing, you know, his creator out of the building. It's like, mm-hmm. go, <laughs> you know, you, you say we belong dead. And it just sort of like, that was the thing of, of me watching the Fantastic Four. It was just sort of like, okay, yeah, I understand why this went in the vault. And, and yeah. again, they, but, but uh, to bring this full circle, what you said at the top of the show, I don't think anybody deliberately goes into a project to make a bad movie but in this sort of situation where it's like we have a million dollars we have a deliberately short production schedule we have to deliver it by this date you know in order to retain the rights they were so handicapped they were just in that circumstance there was just no way they could deliver a really good movie and I think so. if you watch the the doomed documentary, all of the actors had a, just the tiniest feeling of betrayal of like they they're like oh we're gonna be in a Marvel movie I'm playing Mister Fantastic oh my goodness and then they get there and they're like oh well, this is the costume wait a minute what do you mean you've only got twenty two days we're shooting over Christmas what the hell and it, and then they see the the final result and they're like oh this isn't you know like you, you were so excited and proud and then you realize that you're just kind of in a thing for legal reasons not to create art as an artist and then you're like Ugh. And, and then it gets shelved entirely and, and you don't even get the satisfaction of anyone even knowing that you're attached to it and you're like that sucks that could have been a springboard for my career and it turned into a death trap full of freaking alligators nom, 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 nom. thanks guys <laughs> wow now that's that's a slogan I know I'm not going to hear on 32nd Street that 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 no, that's not no. something that makes me think oh I need to get that product though oh no. speaking of which though again Aaron has his wonderful uh, patreon project the 32nd Street would which shines a somewhat cynical eye, uh, a oh, yeah. spotlight on, on Madison Avenue. What are you up to this week? Well, uh, this week we interview Eric Hersey, 
who uh, talks about building I websites. I know that guy. Yeah, he's that a guy. great guy. And, uh, yeah. and uh, he talks mm-hmm. about search engine optimization and stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've spent uh, about 30 years now doing advertising and, and writing it and producing it. But I don't mm-hmm. know a damn thing about websites, mm-hmm. how they work, and, and, you know, how do you get ranked and, and stuff like that. And right mm-hmm. now in the, the media landscape, when you uh, want to talk about, uh, I got to get my company name out there, they yeah. want to buy a bundle of things they want they want radio they want television they want web they want their social media presence Mm -hmm. and that's five different things that you got to manage there and so there's just so much now when it when it comes to getting your brand Mm. branded out there Mm. uh that sometimes you just need to go yeah i don't do that i need an expert eric hersey please talk about web design and seo and uh, it was a f- fantastic uh, hour-long conversation. So no, no, uh, very no. good episode this week on 32nd Street. Can't wait to listen. Eric is a super sharp guy. And yeah. we have very much benefited from uh, our association with him, especially with the Disney Unpacked project. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, very first uh, video series, which, by the way, Aaron <laughs> has done yeoman's work editing the, this thing. Uh, we're finally going to get it out the door on October 1st. But uh, this is the thing we're doing with Jim Shul. Veteran Imagineer, spent 30 years working at, uh, at the company, uh, working in some of your very favorite attractions at the park, things like Rock and Roller Coaster and Mater's Junkyard Jamboree. We're going to launch, again, launch that show. Uh, I want to say uh, first Sunday of October. I don't think we officially announced that yet. But if you don't want to miss out, head on over to Disney Unpacked on YouTube and subscribe. And before that happens, uh, if you're looking for something to listen to, we have some other podcasts here. At the Jim Hill Media Podcast Network, we have, of course, Disney Dish, which I do with Len Testa. Uh, likewise, we have Fine Tuning, which I do with Drew Taylor, who, by the way, has his own outside project, the, the uh, wonderful Light the Fuse, uh, which he does with uh, Charles Hoods, which is the official Mission Impossible podcast. And and just this week, uh, we had a brand new episode of uh, Looking at Lucasfilm with Brian Gahn, where keeping up to speed on Ahsoka. And, and you've been watching that, Aaron, right? Or... Oh, yeah. Space Whales Ahoy. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I, by the way, that would be a, a, a lovely Twitter handle. Uh, <laughs> all right. Speaking of social media, where can we find you these days? Uh, still on uh, X at Azaprod, A-Z-A-P-R-O-D. Something mm-hmm. to uh, look out for in, in my near future on Twitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to be attending Animaniacs live in concert with uh, Rob Paulson and Maurice Lamar. Are you really? Oh, my God. Yeah, uh, that's going to be October 5th here in Carmel, Indiana. And I have uh, reached out to Mr. Paulson asking if I can bring my microphone box that has been signed by uh, mm-hmm. Jim Cummings. Mm-hmm. Otherwise known as Tigger and Winnie the Pooh and other yes, voices. Yes, of course. Yeah. And uh, they were just on a podcast together like a day or two ago. So I was like, mm-hmm. hey, can I bring my mic box that Jim signed and, and mm-hmm. have you sign it as well, please? Mm-hmm. And uh, so that that's my holy grail for the next couple of weeks is see if I can get Maurice LaMarche and Rob Paulson to sign my my oh. microphone box signed by Jim Cummings. Then I'll okay. have almost all of the Animaniacs cast. Wow. I, I, and and uh, what about Tress? I, you know, I don't uh, think she's going to be there for it. They've got uh, uh, Randy Rogel is going to be on piano. Mm-hmm. And then I, I'm pretty sure it's just Rob and Maurice uh, that are going to be singing songs, doing behind the scenes stories of how the characters and songs were developed and, and then some video clips. 
That sounds of, amazing. Uh, Holy yeah, cow. Yeah, yeah. Very, no. very excited for it. And, we, and it, dude, we're in mm. like row G center uh, stage. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Very excited. Very excited. All right. What a great time. Um, yep. Now, speaking of social media, you can uh, find me on Twitter and it's like, well, X uh, and Instagram is Gmail Media and over on Facebook. One final thing here, folks, if you could do uh, Aaron and I a favor, if you get over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review, well, not just the show you're listening to right now, Marvelous Disney, but also 32nd Street, that would be incredibly helpful. Uh, likewise, if you really, really, really like what you heard here tonight, uh, you know, head over to Bandcamp and subscribe. But, man, I got to look to see if, if they're they're coming to, to our area. I mean, I've, I've been lucky enough in the past to... To interview Maurice, and he's he has so many great stories. You did know, you uh, did you make him do the uh, winter peas? <laughs> You're gonna ask about the, the peas. peas. You're gonna ask about the peas. Yeah. Orson Welles. And the weird thing of it is, is it was such a deep cut because think about it. It's only folks in your world <laughs> right, who yeah. shared the original, you know, recording of Orson going off on the director for that, that it wasn't a, a bird's eyes frozen peas or something like that. And, yep. and, and, but then, I mean, that, the, the notion that, that turned that into this piece of animation and now this infamous performance by Maurice as Orson Welles. Like, I seriously want to smuggle in a recorder and try and tape the show, and if I get to meet either one of them, I am going to ask Maurice, all right, do the do the snow peas bit, damn it. Okay, all right. You and I will have to talk off here about this. But okay, anyway, uh, that's going to do it for this week, folks. Thanks for listening, and Aaron and I will be back soon.